Good morning and a happy day to you fine folks out there in podcast land. Today is an awesome day to remind yourself that choosing to associate yourself with those people who want to be accountable and make the world a better place is not selfish. No, not at all. It's a direction and a positive use of energy. Now let's get this day of positive energy started. It's time to play hard, work hard. Now let's play hard. I never let the joker out my sight. Never went broke and then all or nothing. Never made a bet so out of line. Till I met you and I hit the ground. I've never seen so much weakness in one place Gave up the 20 inch bicep with no strength Cause you've been wrapping it around all the wrong things uh, And you were singing my praise Saying I'm magic Welcome to the Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show My name is Jason Spies And today we've got a very special guest with us and Mr. Joe Sinet, how you doing? Doing all right, Jason. How about yourself? Not too bad. Did I pronounce the last name correctly? Because I've only said it like four times, and I know there's two N's and two T's, so is it Sinat or Sinut? It is Sinit. Sinit. with Minute. Sinit Minute. Oh, well, that's easy to remember. And I do remember you telling me that before, so it's not as easy to remember as I thought. Hey, I apologize. It's been a busy month and a half here. I think I've put on 4,000 miles, went down to Texas and Oklahoma City, looped around. I slept outside of Fort Niobrara, Kansas, uh, decided not to stay in the one-horse town for $180 a night that advertised free HBO on the marquee. I decided, no, I'll sleep in my vehicle, save the money, and watch HBO Max on my phone. And uh, did that, and then, of course, went up to the EPA listening session, up to the Bach and Barbecue. I have not made it out to the Marcellus yet, and I do apologize to all the eastern folk in Ohio and Pennsylvania and all the way down in the Appalachians. Uh, even in Florida, because we would like to make it out there. But Joe Sinnott will join us as a boots-on-the-ground correspondent, guest co-host this morning, because Sterling is in Kansas City with the Ramco Bratz buddies. And uh, Mr. Sinnott, how are you doing? I am doing all right, although I'm I'm a bit exhausted hearing about the last couple of weeks of your travels and escapades, but... Uh, I think everybody uh, else is, too. <laughs> <laughs> Especially the LinkedIn folks. Holy smokes. Um, anyway, but what's going on out east? How, how's, uh, how's life in the Marcellus? Life is good. I, I think I can speak for most of the Marcellus operators when I say that the increased natural gas prices are... A good thing for all those companies that are looking to throw off some free cash here over the next year or so. So that's right. Yeah, you guys have uh, you guys up. you guys have the of course the Marcellus with natural gas. Susca is it Susquehanna? Susquehanna? What's the name of that county? Susquehanna. Susquehanna. My understanding is from the guys from Cabot Oil who just uh, merged with another company, by the way. Um, that, that that's like the number one gas producing county in the United States. And that like makes them one of the top oil and gas companies in the world. Just that one little county in Pennsylvania, just to give it a, people an idea how prolific the Marcellus is when it comes to natural gas. So, uh, pre- Hey, by the way, why don't you give your business a quick little plug here for those people do like the 32nd elevator pitch. You know, we hit floor number four on the elevator. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your business, who you, uh, what you are, and uh, who your customer is. All right. Well, who I am is a, uh, you could say, former engineer. So after spending 
15 years in the oil and gas industry and mostly technical roles. I have transitioned into the world of executive coaching. So for the last almost two years now, I've been an executive coach focused on the oil and gas industry. And the 30-second rundown is that I help energy industry leaders make better decisions and help them avoid unwittingly you know, limiting their odds of success and you know, screwing things up, to, to put it bluntly. Uh, the business name is Witting Partners. And again, it comes from that idea of helping leaders avoid unwittingly you know, messing up their odds of success. So you know, that's what I do. It's a mix of one-on-one coaching and you know, group coaching and kind of everything in between there. But at the end of the day, it's, it's helping people make better, faster, more confident decisions using their existing resources and using their existing talent and their existing brains and their knowledge uh, without having to bring in you know, a, a bunch of outside consultants and advisors because you know, in many cases, there's a lot of untapped potential, of course, for, for leaders within these companies. And, and that's what I try to do. I try to extract that potential and, and make sure they get the most bang for, their, for the buck that they've already invested. So that's me. That's what I do. And uh, well, today, though, I am, I'm honored to be a guest co-host. That is, that is the hat I'm wearing today. So. Well, I was going to say, I think that was about floor six, but that's okay. We, we, we <laughs> let, let you go a little bit in overtime there. I did want to mention to some folks out there that uh, bringing in an executive coach during these times is very very relevant and important. And and I'll tell you what, we've got Eric Hatch from Hatch Coaching, but he's in real estate. So back in uh, 2009 and 10, 11, kind of that time frame when the real estate market was going through their paradigm shift, because remember, when the internet came in, the real estate market went through a huge paradigm shift and they had to be bailed out for a couple trillion dollars as well. Uh, during during that time, during I think, like I said, during the two thousand nine ish deals. Well, Eric Hatch at that time he was he, he came from the church, and so he was kind of a youth leader. So he had that executive coachingness in him, trained from the get go, and he brought that into real estate and reinvented the industry. And he went from a mid level realtor to number one at Keller Williams. And then now he's not, he has his own company, Hatch Realty, but he's number one in the state of North Dakota. And last I checked, he was 63rd in the nation. Okay. And this has to do with executive coaching at the core. In fact, and he spun it into where he's teaching uh, real estate people how to reinvent their business. And basically all he did is he said, listen, a realtor does 47 different jobs. What if we just had people do the things they're good at? And we work together as a team as opposed to have one person working against everybody under the same roof. So he just basically reinvented it from a mindset and an intentional standpoint. And honestly, that's one of the things that I like that you bring to the oil and gas industry is not only do you kind of become this project manager for them, but it's with intention. And we're going into this whole ESG movement. And folks, if you want to know what ESG is, just start with intention because that governance allows everybody to go back to the source to find out what was your intention. And so by bringing in somebody who can keep their eye on the ball for you, boy, that's critical right now. How's that? I think we made it to floor 12, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, that was, uh, that, was a, that was a great summary. And I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head with that intentionality. And again, that's, that's, that's what I preach. That's what I do. It's conscious leadership. It's knowing what your ultimate objective is. And in some cases, and reverse engineering, you know, starting with that ultimate objective and then coming backwards so that you don't get sidetracked by some intermediate, you know, 
goal or step or objective that you know winds up steering you in some other direction. So, and again, if you want to talk about ESG, as you just mentioned there, I mean that's that's one of those things. It's a potential distraction. It's a necessary building block, if you will, of of everything. But um, you know, if you're intentional about your ultimate objectives, then you're not going to get sidetracked. And having someone, whether it's a formal coach or not, you know, somebody to at least just ask the dumb questions and say, well, why are you doing X, Y, Z? Or, you know, what, what is your ultimate goal? How is this aligned with, you know, what your stated intention is? And uh, yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head here as we continue. Uh, we're probably running out of floors here in our elevator, but. <laughs> That's okay. We just keep going here. But I wanted to transition into the leadership part because one of the things that we've been teasing about on the Crude Life uh, and the Play Hard, Work Hard morning show is the, this leadership series that we were going to do. And every time that we would mention it in our inbox, studio at thecrudelife.com, studio at thecrudelife.com, we would get a couple emails, and pretty soon we'd have to kick the can down a little bit more because we'd have to go research and we'd have to go some check out something because you know at the end of the day we you know this is what we do for a living so we are trained and we do have kind of intentionality behind every show that we do and so when we talk about doing a series on leadership we understand that that's a very important topic because you've got a lot of different leaders out there right now but not only that. You've got different subsets of leaders. So, for example, you've got companies that have shareholders. So they need to approach their leadership style much differently than a company who's 100% privately owned. So if you're 100% privately owned, you can tell everybody to go press sand all day long. If you've got shareholders, and eh, you can't really do that. You've got to tell people to go get the sand and go and bring it over and everybody gets to examine it. And then you get to tell them nicely, well, we don't really need all that sand. You know, so but then you've got appointed leaders. So you've got uh, the different organizational groups that represent different companies and different people. And then you've got elected leadership too. We're talking about a little bit more than that though. And this is why I'm glad you're here today because, and you can go off on what I just said there. Now, if there, if I left some out and you want to name some or, Opine, go nuts, because this is a whole new topic, and we can go any direction we want. And I'll probably get some more emails, studio at thecrudelife.com on it as well. But we were talking about some of the different styles, you know, like the, my, my favorite one is the old brother where art out there leadership. You know, that's like the whichever way the wind blows or the waffle guy, where have you ever seen the movie Old Brother Where Art Thou? I have, yep. There's a great scene at the end of the movie, where the politician's on stage and he's about ready to arrest the soggy bottom boys because he's been chasing them the whole movie, and then he realizes that the soggy bottom boys are the Beatles now and everybody loves them, and like literally as he turns, he does a 180, does a 180 on stage and does a 180 metaphorically, all right, let's call this soggy bottom day, you know, I mean... Those are some tough leaderships in today's day and age because people are taking out 30 years of loans, five years of loans. And if somebody's just, you know, getting paid no matter what they say, Stephen A. Smith, there we go, bring it into the sports world. Stephen A. Smith, he can go out there and say everything that's incorrect and he'll still get a paycheck as long as he brings in the ratings and the shock value. So that's a little bit different when that leadership has bled into today's, you know, boardroom. 
where somebody's bringing that style in. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that type of leadership than the traditional leadership. So, Joe, I'm going to shut up now because I want to drink my coffee and I want to know what your thoughts are on just the cruise shift that's happening because I do think COVID, uh, it's done. The cruise shift is over. 95 to 99 to 100% of the cruise shift is over now and that got sped up by COVID. So um, I'm going to hand, I'll just hand it off to you while I take a sip of coffee and just go whatever direction you want if you wouldn't mind. <laughs> well, I'll start with where you left off about you know, the different leadership styles that can be unsustainable because, you know, what you just described there is, you know, certain leaders who can almost be on autopilot and have gotten away with it. Well, that's not sustainable, especially now and especially when you're faced with the great crew change and crew shift and whatever you want to call it because all of those, you know, future talent and current talent even, you know, they're they're not going to say they're not going to put up with leaders who are on autopilot and, you know, who aren't conscious and who aren't aware of how, you know, toxic in some cases their approach is. So, you know, that bleeds over into, you know, new talent coming in, whether it's people coming right out of school or whether it's people in that, you know, 10 to 20 year range who still feel like they have a, a you know, pretty good option to shift gears in the middle of things and, you know, try to parlay what they've been doing for, you know, again, several years in oil and gas and go into something else because, you know what, what's going to keep, why, why, why would they stay? Why would they stay in an environment if you have crappy leadership? So I think, you know, everything you touched on makes sense. And even going back to all of the various people that you're leading, essentially, um, that's, that's been a very popular trendy term over the last couple of years, which is these, this idea of stakeholder centered leadership. Because as you said, Jason, you've got shareholders, you know, you might have private equity people, you've got uh, politicians, you've got the community, you've obviously got employees, you've got suppliers, you've got, you know, all those different stakeholders. Well, if you're a leader, of a, especially at the very top of a company, you need to be aware of all of those. And right now with the crew change, probably the biggest or most important stakeholders, you could argue, are the future talent that's going to be able to, you know, lead individual companies and certainly lead the industry forward. And, if you're not taking a sustainable approach to engaging with them, to, I don't want to say telling them what they want to hear, but certainly informing them and you know being open and transparent and honest about what this industry is, why it's important, why they should continue to you know, put their time and effort and energy into uh, sustaining a career in it, well, you know you're not going you're not going to have that talent and you're going to have a void and you know I see it in my day to day with some of the coaching I do of people that are in career transition and you know it, it's it's real Jason there's there's a lot of bad messaging out there and what? sometimes when leaders recognize it you know it, it comes across as is you know fake almost when they're they're scrambling to tell a positive message and, and try to keep people engaged and interested in oil and gas when you know, these people are, are fed up, they're tired. Again, maybe not as tired as, as you are after your 4,000 miles and sleeping in your car and all that, but, you know, they're, they're exhausted. In many cases, they're ready for something else. And if, if there's leaders out there who aren't, you know, who, who don't even acknowledge that, or, and again, they're, they're unwittingly just pissing off this current talent, let alone future talent, well, again, it's, it's just not sustainable. So you hit the nail on the head. I think you're, you're spot on that, you know, it, it takes... It takes a level of awareness that in many cases has you know, has not been there for, for certain leaders and certain companies. I think the industry has been living in a bubble, 
to be honest. Um, and I heard silos, I've heard buckets, I've heard clicks, I've heard country club, I've heard fraternity, I've heard all kinds of different things, but either way, it's, it's there. And I mean, cause when I started actually talking with people back in 2015, 2000 and in 2015, I pitched the state of North Dakota and the, the, the group that's in charge of the oil and gas people, uh, this thing called the Bakken Bridge, which was, we need to connect because every time I go to Colorado, people are looking over their shoulders before they say that they work in the oil and gas industry in the breakfast bar. And people around Fargo-Moorhead, where I live in Fargo, they're, they're wrinkling their nose at oil and gas. So back in 2015, I started seeing this stuff. And so we've been trying to pitch this to the industry now for going on six, six years. And we're still hearing the same people get up in front of the same people and they're getting the same money saying, oh, we got to change. We got to take action. Well, they've been, I mean, for three years now, they've honestly been saying the exact same thing, but I don't see anybody taking that next step. Uh, You're a small business owner. You're forced to take steps. I'm a small business owner. I'm forced to take steps. How, how do we get some of the bigger companies, especially the ones that have been being paid by the government for the past year? You got to remember, a lot of people have been getting subsidies for the, and stimulus for the past year, so they haven't had any motivation to change their behavior. I'm afraid that it's going to happen so fast that the last couple of years of reaction are going to seem like nothing at all. So um, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even know what the question is, but... I, I think that uh, the industry needs to kind of wake up a little bit more, I guess is what I'm saying. And I know how uh, defensive the industry can get. So it's a tough thing to bring into conversation. So, um, Joe, did I piss you off or am, can we talk about this? <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you haven't pissed me off. I mean, you've touched on a couple things that, um, quite frankly, as a coach, my job is usually to shut up and ask questions. So I don't, you know, I don't spend a lot of my day opining and, and you know, offering right. my thoughts. But but now that I'm on your show here, I have the option, option to do that. And I think what I see is probably the biggest problem is that these companies, they swing too far the other direction. So when they recognize that there's holes that, you know, need to be filled in or, or you know, they need to um, – you know, they need to react. Well, that reaction can go so far the other direction. And again, some of that comes across as some, you know, ESG sustainability type stuff. But when when you are constantly living in this polarized world of either, you know, we are old school oil and gas, we're gonna, you know, we're we're gonna grind things out and you know do everything the way that you know <laughs> it's been done for the last several decades. And then again, that's not a bad thing. And then you try to flip to becoming this, you know, employee friendly, you know, happy go lucky. Everything is, you know, everything is great. And you're, you're, everything is fluffy and wonderful. And it, it, it could be confusing, right? So I think my goal uh, as a coach, and I think what you just described in terms of, you know, being a figurative bridge between some of those you know, ends of the spectrum, my goal is to help leaders get a sustainable approach and focus on their mission and recognize that, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of different paths to get there, but very few of those paths are, are on the extremes, if that makes sense. You know, and, and we can talk about the, en- the energy industry who, you know, we've certainly there's companies out there that are, have been pushing back against the 
enemies of oil and gas, the, the haters of oil and gas. Obviously, the North Face example is probably one of the best ones. But, you know, even when you when you do that and you try to hammer home facts and, you know, what we would say is, is you know, reasonable discussion, well, you might go so far that you wind up almost humiliating the other side. They might not admit it, but now you just get into this back and forth where everybody's on the defensive. And, you know, I'm talking from a macro level, but it happens within companies too, or it's just, you know, 80% of the people with an organization are, are on the defensive. They're either defending, you know, the way things used to be, or, or they're defending some 180 degree shift to something else. Whereas, and again, it, it almost sounds cliche, but there's such a lack of, of, I don't know, desire sometimes to find that middle ground, because guess what? That could be, that, that's a lot more effort. It's a, I, it's a lot of effort sometimes. And and again, having bridges to say, all right, it's maybe not as onerous as you think, you know, that's what we need. So um, again, a long-winded response, uh, maybe a little too impassioned of a response, but it's the polarization, Jason. That's the that that's it. It's it's we're living on the extremes and and we're flipping switches back and forth instead of just honing in on some sustainable path, which takes a little bit from you know from both sides. Well, all right, let's lighten it up a little bit with a little bit of a game show here, then at least, because, well, not really a game show, but this is supposed to be play hard part here, but we are going to talk about some serious issues here because the industry is going through some changes and some people are going through transition just by force of the government and by the force of just the mar- the marketplace that is being very controlled right now. So uh, I did want to ask you about either ESG or chauvinism, because uh, Mayor Patrick Payton brought up chauvinism as a leadership quality that's probably going to go away in the uh, oil and gas uh, movement here. And then, of course, I wanted to bring up the ESG portion, too. So there's the game show part. Would you like behind door number one or what's underneath the box? <laughs> I like I like we can start with chauvinism because I think it ties into to the you know, some of the things you've talked about already. Good deal. Uh, if, if, that, if that's okay, Monty Hall, right? Was he the... Uh, He's the original, man. He's the original. Now it's Wayne Brady, but Monty Hall was the original host of Let's Make a Deal. You bet. And then they... I we You know, I grew up on a farm, so, I, you know, I came from ag, and I used to laugh so hard because, you know, the, the, the old school Let's Make a Deal, it would be either you can get the, you know, this couch set, this ugly couch set that nobody wanted, or they would have like a cow behind there, and my farmer uncles would start laughing, going, "Oh, they think they're getting screwed by the cow. That cow's worth a lot more than those the, those couches." And he would get into the economics of the cow. It was so funny. That's <laughs> supposed to be the zonk prize, but I suppose you know we we could even tie that into what that what that actual message was to farmers. I've said for a long time now. We're talking five, six years. I've been telling the oil and gas industry, and I'll say it again, what's going on here is that the public is trying to replace the light switch in the same way that the grocery store replaced the farmer. And when Monty Hall gets up there on Let's Make a Deal and the Zonk Prize, the prize that everybody points at you and laughs at is a cow. Okay, that thing feeds your family. That thing is so revered in India, they will drive, a, they will build a building around a cow if the cow doesn't want to move because the cow eats grass, drinks water, and gives so much back. That's people didn't, don't realize this that in India, they don't revere the cow because of religious reasons, it's out of respect. 
because the cow gives so much back to their society. That's why they revere the cow. So anyway, um, there's a great example of how social engineering can actually happen. And they did it through Monty Hall, whether it was by design or not, didn't matter. The average person now was making fun of a farmer because that was the Zonk prize on let's make a deal. And a lot of that's going on with the oil and gas industry right now. They just shame it. So um, one of the things, chauvinism, sorry. Uh, did you want to comment on that, by the way? <laughs> uh, I think I was going to comment on it, but I'll, I'll tell you what. No, I mean, don't. Please do. The, please do. I, 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 I do not try to do that where I just say this really cool statement and then try to move on because that's, that's, uh, that's, that's closed journalism. This is an open format here. So let's hand it off here, Monty Hall. What do you got to say? Well, I think in terms of being open to the fact that, yeah, that that uh, <laughs> that prize of the cow that would, would seem to be a joke prize is actually more meaningful in other parts of the world. I think you can bring that to different leadership styles, and you know, like chauvinism. You could say, well, we we would automatically say, well, you know, a a chauvinistic leader in today's day and age is it's just not going to fly, right? But if you come back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of just being conscious as a leader, you know what? Let's look at it and say, is there value in being a chauvinistic leader without just, you know, w- without just jumping to the conclusion and say, well, no, that's bad now. And you say, look, there's trade-offs. Maybe there's some benefits to being a chauvinistic leader. This is sort of a silly example, but, you know, it's just like with the cow. You might look at it, you know, most people might look at it and laugh and, and dismiss it, you know, out of pocket. But a conscious leader says, hey, you know what? You know, maybe, I, maybe I'm a jerk. Maybe that's my leadership style. I'm aware of it. And for what my organization needs, like the, the downside of me being a jerk does not outweigh the upside. And, you know, as again, as a coach, my job is to, you know, not just go in and say, you're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. You're doing this wrong. It's more, all right, are you aware of the pros and cons of this leadership style? You know, are you aware of the pros and cons uh, of a cow, uh, you know, as, as it relates to your different stakeholders. So again, maybe a bit of a stretch there to tie the things together, but, but I think, Oh no, chauvinism and cow always great together. (laughs) Great, great way to tie it together. Normally we use dog, but that's okay. (laughs) Anyway, so that's, that's my, uh, my two cents or maybe, maybe a few more than two cents on, on that, but no, but but I, I I think that I, I do think the, the main thing is awareness. Because listen, and I've, I, I say this to people all the time, like, you know, when, when my ex and I would fight because of maybe she was too selfish or things like that, I always say, you know, there, there's some jealousy there because I wish I would be more like that, you know? And so because one person views the quality as bad or as maybe something that's not as beneficial to an organization, it's best to become aware of it and say, okay, wh- wh- where are the good in that? And how can we focus on the good and really hone that part of it? And then the other negatives will just shed themselves, you know, that type of thing. And hopefully when there's an awareness put in, they do shed themselves, you know, but it does take a little bit of work on the person as well. And that's why people like you can come in to either crack the whip or hold them somewhat accountable because a lot of leadership is not doing that because they're so focused on the bottom line of that quarter. That's the other part of that quarter. Because so much of this is a long-term play now, especially when we're talking about ESG. And that's really why the, the chauvinistic part has, has really come to light. Because if we don't have to get into examples, tomorrow on this very network, The Crude Life, 
on the Play Hard, Work Hard morning show, it's, it's being taken over by all women. So Chris Moore, voice of West Texas, she's with 550 AM and two FMs. She'll be hosting a panel discussion with three women, the real oil-filled women of the South, Frankie Osborne, Tiffany Wilson, and Heather Farrell. They've taken the uh, the reins on the first go-around, and here's Joe. Joe, you ready for this? This is how this actually came to light. Was um, it, it, there were several things, but one in the month of March, we we actually featured a woman every single day, every single day because it was Women's uh, History Month. And when we did a search for history uh, in industry and women in history. There was just that can-do lady, and that was it. You know, the, the woman wearing the bandana, yes, I can, and she's flexing her muscles, and Pink did a cover that mirrors it, you know. Outside of that, I think Harriet Tubman was too. I didn't even know she was in industry. I mean, apparently, you know, that type of thing. I mean, honestly, it was like, I, 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 the, I think uh, there was a pilot in there maybe. I mean, there were some stretches, what I'm getting at. So what we did is just said, well, everybody in industry today Man, they're just making history every single day because they're living history. And all month long, we put out there, hey, if you know a woman doing incredible things, let us know. You see how we, Joe, we're not shy at the crude life. We, we become very vocal when we get behind our causes. And um, we got, th- it was two, all month long, we got two. That's it. Two emails came in to nominate women. Okay, now just to give you an idea, two months earlier, we did the Super Bowl, and we put out there, if you want to be in our Super Bowl square, send us an email and we'll put you in there. We got 134 just off three posts. That's it. Three posts, we got 134 emails for Super Bowl squares. All month long, we saturated, do you know a woman in industry, and we got two. But... I got over 20 emails from people saying, how dare you put so-and-so as a leader? I mean, we had some pretty good leaders that month. And I got more emails of women knocking other women that we tried to promote and empower. I, I, it, it, I said, we got to give women a voice. So tomorrow's show here on this platform should be pretty good. Should be pretty interesting because, and then right before we, we recorded it, we had Mayor Patrick Payton on, and he's the one who brought up the male chauvinism. I was like, oh, thank goodness somebody other than me brought it up because <laughs> a, it always makes life easier, you know, when you can, when you can hand off or delegate or point the finger or, thro- or in some cases throw them under the bus. Uh, and, and so we had a great discussion. We had Myra Vargas on as well. So she was able to uh, have a woman's point of view right out of the gate. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that chauvinism side, about how that is a serious issue. It's being discussed much more than people realize. And that is a huge part of the transition that's going on with the ESG movement. And that is something no one is talking about, except for people behind closed doors. So, uh, Joe, you don't have to comment on that if you don't want to, but I'll give you the opportunity or we can talk about ESG. Well, I'll say one thing about everything you just laid out there, Jason, and that's that there are bottom line implications when you're conscious of, again, I mean, we're, we're using the word chauvinism, but, you know, whatever biases there are, you know, when it comes to women, especially in oil and gas, that costs 
a lot of money because those women and this and this is this is you know based on actual data those women have to basically they have to put forth more effort to get feedback from their leaders so that they can in turn perform better and and you know honestly add as much value to the company as possible so you know if you're not aware of the fact that you know women statistically are not getting as good a feedback as prompt a feedback you know as as direct a feedback if you're not aware of that as a leader, well, guess what? Now, those women are not going to be performing as well, or they're going to have to put in twice as much energy. And at some point, they're going to say, well, screw this. I'm going to go somewhere else where, where you know, I don't have to um, pull feedback out of my out of leadership um, because, you know, they're afraid to, you know, to to you know, tell me what I need to do to get better. So oh, again, it, there's a bottom line impact there. Again, that all comes back to the crew change and all that. I mean, it's all, it's all connected and it all impacts the bottom lines. So and it becomes extremely complex, extremely complex because of those, those uh, ripple effects that you were just talking about the, 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 the bottom line impacts, you know, where, you know, some of these emails I were getting were very graphic. They were naming names and, and, uh, saying so-and-so is doing this. And what I took away from it was, wow. So if there's a woman out there who's being abused against somebody in power, so somebody in power is abusing their authority against somebody lesser, and that lesser tries to go to somebody who's supposed to help them, and they stick up for the abuser of power, where, where are people supposed to go? And I, it was so mind-boggling to me that there are people that will enable the power abusers over somebody who's just looking for basic human decency. Over these last 4,000 miles, I can tell you this, Joe, there is a huge market for human decency right now, a huge market for those people who just want to have human decency in their world. And they'll pay for it. People will pay for it. That's what's so incredible right now. Anyway, so... Well, I want to talk a little ESG, if you wouldn't mind, because I think I, I want to know your thoughts on this whole ESG movement, because we've been doing the ESG stuff for about five, six, seven years now. In fact, back in, I want to say, 2013 or 14, we started doing a weekly ESG report. It wasn't called that at the time, but we did a weekly ESG report with Meridian Energy Group because a big part of what we were trying to do is transparency. So every week on over five states across the Bakken and on the radio and on the internet, and you can go listen to the podcasts, we would have the CEO of Meridian Energy Group on or the project manager from the engineering firm. And in some cases, the engineering firm out of New Mexico that was working on the behind-the-scenes science just to explain how different bends and and, and uh, angles are reducing emissions. So we've been here at The Crude Life, we've been doing ESG reporting weekly for seven, eight years. So we're very much experts when it comes to this. Now, one of the things that I do believe that is so interesting about ESG is, ironically, I think the industry has the E covered. The environmental part is where they're getting slammed the most in the public forum. And ironically, that's the part that they have down very well with science. 
The social part, I think they're already doing for the most part. You know, by, by sponsoring all the nonprofits they do and by, you know, creating platforms like we just did at the Bach and Barbecue and, you know, involving the different communities. They just need to be a little bit more open about it and, and that sort of thing. But they're like 90%, 95% there on the social part. The G side, I think there's a little bit of post-traumatic stress, and that's where I think there's going to be issues. Because um, they're so used to the Exxon and the BP where, you know, one thing goes wrong and it's a decade of PR battles, man. And, I, and this is where I, I feel bad for the industry because it, it ain't right. It is not right that they, they are uh, held accountable to the tune they are um, on that, that side of things. So um, that, that's where I kind of am right now in the ESG. I think the E, they've got down science-wise. I think the S, they're pretty much there. All they got to do is accept the fact. And the G, though, I think there's, there's going to be some issues there. So um, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with your assessment. Uh, I think in terms of ESG in general, I think one of the most unfortunate things is this this false binary between, all right, you either buy in 100% on all this ESG stuff and, and you know, everything that you're being told to do, whether it's from investors or outside groups, or, you know, you're, you're you know, you hate the environment, you hate people, you hate everything. You know, it's, it, it, it's as if, if you, you know, if you're not in 100%, then you're, then you're big, bad, evil oil and gas. So I think that's one general thing. In terms of the G, which honestly kind of ties into the E and the S as well, I think, one thing that oil and gas companies, I don't say should do, it, it, would, it would bring me great joy if more companies went out there and said, look, we are on board with the idea of ESG. And in fact, as you said, Jason, I mean, there's companies that have been doing it. They've been doing it for years anyway. However, we're not going to be governed by some third-party uh, rules that aren't based on science or, or aren't you know, being drawn up by people who understand our industry. Yet we're just, we're just not going to do it. And you know, again, can you go out and can you set your own ESG standards, or are you going to have to abide by whatever you know universal standards as they as they come into play? Certainly, I mean, there's I mean, there's no doubt from an SEC standpoint, everything that you're going to get these standardized ESG metrics. But can companies go out and say, look, we have good metrics. This is what we're doing, and you know, I don't want to say we don't care what other parties are saying, but they're not informed, and this is where we are, and deal with it. Again, I don't know how you get there, but that that middle of the road approach would just be so refreshing instead of bouncing back and forth and back and forth, which is which is what you're seeing now, right? I mean, you see a you know a lawsuit come out that you know goes against an oil and gas company, and then you know now those oil and gas companies have to go on the defensive and, and say what they're doing, or they completely you know <laughs> completely give in and say, yep, yep, you're right, we're we're going to change our ways. Whereas again, you you can land in the middle with a little bit of guts, quite frankly. I mean, there, there's a risk to that, right? It's, it's unknown how it's going to play out because most of your interested parties seemingly, or at least the noisiest ones, are on one end of the spectrum. And, you know, they're the most vocal companies out there, the Black Rocks of the world, you know, they're, they're not sitting on the fence. They're, you know, they're taking clear stands. And, you know, if you're not, you know, if you're not on one side or the other, it could probably feel quite lonely. But that's what it's going to take to sustain this industry and to ultimately, you know, deliver cheap, reliable, plentiful energy for the world. So again, I'll, I'll hop down off my soapbox there, Jason, but, uh, but it's the same thing we talked about even from individual leaders. It's so much time is spent in the extremes and, you know, and, and bouncing back and forth instead of just honing in on a sustainable path that 
um, lead to sustainable results. Well, I think a lot of that comes down to either the chauvinism or the country club economics or just the, the being exclusive. You know, a lot of it is that by just being inclusive, you know, by by understanding that everybody uses energy. So everybody should be included in the in, in, in the discussion. And what I mean by that is just this week. Now, keep in mind, I'm, I'm a trained journalist, right? So I'm not a, I'm not a, a frack scientist. You know, I'm not a frack chemist. So there, there, we, we have our different skills in our trades, right? So when there was a player for the Las Vegas Raiders, I almost said Los Angeles Raiders, which isn't even right because they were the Oakland Raiders. And, and then anyway, so it's the Las Vegas Raiders now. But he came out as the very first player, active player, to be, uh, to be gay, and first, I didn't know you could use the word gay in, like that. I thought it had to be like homosexual or alternative lifestyle. I didn't even know what the correct word was. So there I learned that the word gay you can use in a headline. Uh, number two, my first thought was, why is this news? And that bothered me. That really bothered me because I'm, you know, I, I've won awards for being a writer and being a publisher and for, you know, newspaper and magazines and radio. So, I mean, that, that, that did bother me that everywhere I looked, this was huge news. So I called a, a, a colleague of mine down in Minneapolis and he was like, Oh, it's huge news, huge news, Jason. He worked in sports radio and sports news. And, and he explained, you know, why, you know, the, the courage behind this and, just in the locker room and, and that whole side. And then I called a friend of mine who's, you know, homosexual, is gay. And they just talked about how the representation and how the fact that I even had to ask should make me aware that I don't understand, you know? And I'm like, okay, okay. But I actually did a little deep diving to find out my awareness, you know, because there was an awareness there that I, I, I questioned it. Like, what's going on here? And, you know, because I, I was, you know, raised that your politics and your sexuality and your income and that sort of thing, that's nobody's business, man. That's nobody's business. And so to see how now when you go to a dinner party, everybody has to talk about whether they're vaccinated or whether they got, you know, this health disease or this, and whether their nephew is a transgender or accepts gay people in their life. I mean, that is all like totally new to me considering the way I was raised. So uh, I just wanted to give you that little story there about just an awareness that I'm going through in my, you know, my, my industry and my profession. Cause I think there's something to be said about that. There was a lot of people at the Bakken barbecue that came up to me and personally thanked me for even having potatoes and for, you know, making sure that Miss North, uh, Miss Teen North Dakota could talk about, you know, mental health and just some of those social aspects that we never had before, we, that we never had before. And at the end of the day, I, I don't even know if it was more than 20 minutes of the program, you know, and it was huge, but it made a huge impact. So um, there you go, man. How's that for you? For I don't even know if there's a question in there. <laughs> Maybe not a question, but, but again, you brought up, the, the key word, I think, today, which is awareness. You know, it's it's just about being conscious of how your actions and, you know, even policies and procedures within a company, you know, how they impact all your stakeholders. And it goes both ways. You know, I mean, you have companies who, you know, they, they embrace diversity. And again, we think that's, that is a good thing. But, you know, the whole, the cliche, you know, diversity is our strength. Well, diversity is not your strength if you're just feeling like you're checking the box and, 
you know, you're, you're just going through the motions and you're, you're, you've built a diverse team, but you're not actually, you know, taking the time to understand what that means and understand the individuals that you've brought in, understand how they can really contribute other than just, you know, they're there. Well, they're there. They have different opinions. Well, no, it, it sometimes it's a little more complicated than that. And, and again, that, that comes with a level of awareness that is, you know, it, it's easy to, it's easy to forget about because of how fast moving our industry is. And then, I mean, the world, quite frankly, and, you know, you're moving on to the next thing. What's going to replace ESG? You know, I mean, year two from now there, I mean, there's definitely going to be some, you know, some new iteration, some new sexy thing that's out there. And, you know, well, what does that mean? Does that mean we, we stop focusing on ESG? Does that mean, you know, we have to drop everything and, and go to this other thing that's only going to be, you know, some sort of short-lived, uh, trendy thing? Well, well, no, because if you're aware of what your ultimate goal is, you realize that all these things, you know, play a role to some degree. And and again, you know, diversity and understanding of, of different people is, that, that's, that, that can be powerful, but too often, and again, I'm, I'm speaking just from my own observations here, you know, too, too often leaders either aren't fully aware of what they're doing or more importantly, they're not aware of how they're coming across. You know, they're, they're not aware that people, people think that a, a company who has some, I don't know, whether it's some sort of social thing or they're, they're bringing in, you know, more diversity or whatever, you know, there's people that are looking at that and they're saying that's fake. That's not authentic. That they're just, they're just doing it because again, some outside party forced them to do it. That reminds me. You just need to be aware of. I was uh, one of my one of my shows was on a uh, radio station that carried uh, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, uh, Mark Levin, and the guy who's more you know extreme right wing than Mark Levin, right? Um, I think Glenn Beck was who it was, anyways. But uh, so it was from the outside. It was a it was it seemed like a pretty right side of the aisle Republican radio station, right? And so I was, I was meeting with their um, manager, their main host, and um, there, was, uh, there was about seven people in the room, okay? And these were all grown-ups, <laughs> and they were all older than me. And they, they, were, they could not understand why they just couldn't get through and all this other stuff. And, and they asked me, they said, Jason, what are you hearing out in the street? You know, what's going on, you know, with, with us? And I said, well, besides the fact that you guys are, you know, a Republican station. And they looked at me and they, they said, what? And the one guy got really mad. He goes, no, we're not. I go, excuse me? And they were, that was like the first time they had ever heard of it and ever became aware of it because they had surrounded themselves with so many yes men that nobody had the, the gumption or the balls or the awareness or whatever to say that, you know, you guys are shutting off a big part of your audience by going down this path or what, what, you know, whatever the interpretation is. But all of a sudden they were pissed off at me in the meeting. And here I was just, I, I didn't realize I was naming the elephant in the room. I didn't realize that. Um, because <laughs> here I thought I was just going from square one on that, but I do think there's a little bit of that out there too, because I have noticed the uh, herd mentality exists from time to time in different places. So uh, I just wanted to mention that little story real quickly about that, because I think that that's relatable to a lot of different people. Uh, I want to get an update out west, and before we, you know, we can actually kind of tie in some news if you wouldn't mind, but um, 
we got. I'm looking at the clock, so we got to wrap up here. But what's going on out in your neck of the woods? I mean, you. How close are you to New York? I guess you know New York is keep it in the ground. They don't want anything to do with you know natural gas and Pennsylvania. They're kind of depends on the day of the week and what part of the part of the town you're in. In Ohio, they they seem pretty pro oil and gas for the most part, but you never know. Um, what's going on out there? Yeah, I'd say. I mean, overall. So I'm in, you know, I'm in Pittsburgh, so Southwest PA, which you could argue is the heart of the Marcellus, even though Northeast PA and Susquehanna, like we talked about earlier, they they have some tremendous rock there, but in some ways it's kind of disconnected from where we are down here. So you know, here we're we're close to West Virginia, we're close to Ohio, and you know, it is still, uh, you know, very much oil and gas friendly, certainly natural gas friendly. Um, in terms of headlines, though, you do have a lot of people that that are making noise and. You know, credit where it's due. We have a, it's the county executive here in Allegheny County. This is where Pittsburgh is. And just this past week, there was a group of anti fossil fuel people who were trying to bully him into changing his stance on shale. He is, he is pro, you know, natural gas. He's pro fracking. Um, he's a Democrat, as are most of the local politicians, uh, in this neck of the woods, but he, he's, He's reasonable. He understands the benefits for his constituents from a you know, from a financial standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, which again the the anti oil and gas people um, you don't want to hear. So fortunately, from a political standpoint, you know even a lot of the the those who might you might think would be against oil and gas here in Pennsylvania, you know they 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 understand it. I mean you can't deny the billions of dollars of investment and you know the the drastic reduction in greenhouse gases in. Pennsylvania, because we have natural gas and we've we've moved away from coal. So, you know, so yeah, every so often there, there's some things, but but what's interesting about Pennsylvania is even a good number of of uh, of those who you might think would be anti-industry, you know, <laughs> when it's in your face and when their goal is to support their constituents, and you know, everybody here in Pennsylvania knows how much lower their well, maybe not everybody knows, but. Um, whether they know it or not, you know, our natural gas bills and our electricity bills are you know, way cheaper than they would have been 10 years ago because of it. So, you know, they, they get it. Um, you know, they still need to throw in their talking points. But by and large, again, give credit where it's due. Somebody like this county executive here, he recognizes the middle ground and the benefits of it. You know, he can say, hey, I am... You know, I, I understand. I believe in global warming. I believe in you know eventually reducing our dependence on fossil fuels. I believe in you know getting rid of single-use plastic if it's possible at some point. But right now, you know, we need plastics for all of this stuff. We need energy, and we need to be reasonable. And long story short, uh, this group that was against him, I think at least once, if not twice, they showed up at his house over the last uh, week and a half. You know, trying to get him to change his mind, and and you know, I think there was a couple of people that were trying to go up to his front door. So. Um, you know, fortunately, logic, you know, if we believe that logic will win out, there are some, you know, middle of the road politicians out there, at least here in Pennsylvania, who, I mean, they cannot deny the benefits that natural gas has, has had for our, uh, for, our, well, for our world, quite frankly, but certainly, uh, you know, for us here in the, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Well, if you think about it, send me over a list of those middle of ground politicians, because the mayor of Midland, Texas, is trying to energize some of these uh, middle of the ground, uh, middle of the road politicians. To you know, he, he knows that there's extremes on both sides, but so he's going to go out to Washington in September and try to reach those middle of the ground politicians and, and try to get them 
more focused on what the uh, oil and gas industry is doing for the economy and for the lifestyles and everything like that. So that includes anybody out there listening, uh, studio at thecrudelife.com, studio at thecrudelife.com, and we're just going to forward them to his handler and his people and make sure that they can get uh, those together. I was just listening to the interview this morning, actually, with uh, Mayor Patrick Payton. We're running it on our radio network this weekend across five states, actually international because... Some of the radio stations are so close to the Canadian border that we bleed into Canada. So we can actually call it an international radio program. <laughs> I love the technicalities. Of, anyway, but uh, well, let's wind uh, down here and wrap up. So how can people give you some business, sir? Well, easiest way, as always, is probably LinkedIn, or uh, you can head on over to my website, waitingpartners.com, W-I-T-T-I-N-G. And uh, yeah, always always happy to chat with with folks, whether it's coaching related or not. So, and let's just kind of final word. What do you want people to walk away from today's uh, morning show and interview? What what do you want the last word to be? Sustainability should be the last word, and people need to ask themselves whether they're whether they're taking an, a sustainable approach to their personal lives, to their professional lives. And whether they have a, a, a true understanding of sustainability, that's not just subject to uh, you know to interpretation and and doesn't oversimplify sustainability by bucketing it into either you know an E an S or a G bucket. It's it's true ability to sustain whatever success you've had and and whatever momentum you've had in your life. You know, are you taking a sustainable approach to your you know, each and every day? So that's that's the final word for me is authentic, meaningful sustainability. The music featured on the Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show this week is by Elma Cook. This is Elma Cook. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. <laughs> Look, you know what you right. So what you're doing now, calling me at midnight. I've done nothing but giving you the good life. I mean, I, I really would have been a good wife. The Crude Life Play Hard, Work Hard is sponsored in part by Orange Property Management. The origins of Orange Property Management date back to the year 2000 when Fargo native Mike Marcel, an entrepreneur who was living in California, was starting to acquire residential properties in the Bay Area as a little side venture. Fast forward to today, Orange Property Management has grown to 36 full-time employees across 13 communities with a portfolio of over 1,300 residential and commercial units ranging from single-family homes to multi-family apartment Elements. For more information, visit their website, orangeproperties.com. That's orangeproperties.com. The Crude Life Play Hard, Work Hard is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. 
Trust, First International Mineral and Land Services, and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out theindustrialforest.com. That's theindustrialforest.com. Play hard, work hard. Now let's work hard. That's what love is. Like that is yeah. like what things are. Who am I that I would push back? Is that the loving thing you made a bit for me that I Thank you for joining the program here today. We're all month long. We're going to be doing uh, ESG, environmentally friendly, environmental innovation, industrial integrity as well when it comes to the world of oil and gas and energy and just the whole, I guess, energy gamut, if you will. Uh, Ashley McNamee is our guest today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Excellent, and thank you for joining the program here today. Before we get into you know the the eco world and the investments, and when it comes to the, just this whole new uh, approach to energy, uh, we're sunsetting, if you will, because technically we are still in March as we're recording this, even though it's going to air in April in a couple days. Uh, <laughs> we're we're finishing up Women's History Month. And you're a female, and you've worked in the oil and gas industry now for about 10 years, 10, 12 years? Uh, no, it's been about seven or eight. Oh, yeah. seven or eight. Okay, but you came from media. So, yeah, after uh, 10 years. Yeah, <laughs> I, the, the reason I wanted to bring, it in, bring that up is that technically you've kind of blazed the, the trail a little bit because media, you were technically a trailblazer when it came to females being in the, a news anchor and just solidifying that role in television. And then also in the world of, of oil and gas, I think personally any woman working in oil and gas right now is writing history as we speak because traditionally there's only been just a handful. So as we define the new world of energy right now, boy, it's there's all kinds of females just carving their own path in the world of energy. So uh, with your background in media and your background in energy, talk to me a little bit about just females, their contributions, and how you view uh, women when it comes to industry. Sure. Yeah, oil and gas has always been so unique. And one thing I do appreciate about it, although I do have a college degree, is it's still one of the um, industries and fields where I think how hard you work determines how well you do. Um, so you are starting to see, um, actually over the last probably five to 10 years, folks from really diverse backgrounds being brought into the industry. So whether it's a tech background or finance, or in my case, media and journalism, um, the diversity of knowledge that's come into the industry, I think is really is what helped change um, like significant parts of it. Um, so for instance, when I left news to come join Whiting Petroleum back in 2014, uh, the impetus for that was the ballot initiatives in Colorado that were trying to begin, you know, um, setbacks and sort of de facto regulations on the oil and gas industry. 
And the company's idea was to get someone from the media to do for industry what the media had been doing against it. And so um, came into lighting and there really wasn't a lot of infrastructure in terms of internal and external communications, community relations, and then eventually what turned into ESG. So uh, I guess to your point, when it didn't exist, it was pretty um, okay to come in and the leadership, our CEO at the time, Jim Volker, was very minded and really let us run with it, build an entire department around those things. And uh, today it's not only an entire department, it's an entire career. And now I'm doing ESG full time for Alvarez and Marsal. So it is evolving daily. Um, but yeah, there's definitely opportunities for not only all genders, but definitely um, all backgrounds, I think, in our industry today. ESG, environmental social governance, uh, just a very quick definition of what that is for energy companies out there that might be listening and have heard that term and maybe even kind of know what it is a little bit, but what's the uh, short version of what it is? Yeah, so ESG, as you said, stands for environmental, social, and governance, and the real crux of it is around disclosures. So it started probably 10 years ago, meaningfully, where investors and different groups, perhaps from the left or the environmental side, uh, were encouraging and requesting more information from any public company in terms of how their operations or company impacts both the environment society and or how their governance structures um, play a part in that. So, um, yeah, ESG is basically disclosing your performance in those areas. And as it's evolved, it's becoming more formalized. There are frameworks to put them through and um, potentially even a regulation coming in terms of what ESG will look like and how you will disclose in what metrics. For me, it's been interesting to watch Meridian Energy Group with the refinery out there come at it from a uh, science side, um, from the bending of pipes to the uh, uh, different coatings that can come on to the automatic sensors. So there's a whole, you know, there's a science side to this ESG part. and But there's also, you know, the public relations side of things, too. And I wanted to start with that before we get into maybe some of the science side of things. Uh to me, I think it's a whole different ball game that the energy industry has not quite grasped yet in terms of what they're dealing with. You've got a media background a little bit, and you and I have talked a little bit about the 5,000-foot view when it comes to that kind of existential uh, public relations and energy. Uh, talk to me about how the awareness and the transparency in the public relations folds into this whole ESG, whether it's from an investment standpoint, a shareholder standpoint, or just regulation standpoint. Sure. So actually, you are on the money. Uh, back in 2014 and 15, when we first started approaching our management team at Whiting, our reasoning for wanting to engage in ESG is that we had great stories to tell. And we were looking around and starting to see, you know, the tech sector and even some of the larger oil and gas companies engage in ESG, or back then we even called it sustainability reporting. And as we were looking at it, it was like, well, we have stories that are as or better than that, so why don't we start to tell ours as well? And it really has worked to our advantage. Um, the industry, as we all know, it's no big secret, has not been great at public relations or promoting all the good work it's done for decades. And so it is a little bit of a catch-up game, but the, the truth of the matter is there are so many good things happening and the industry, as it has done with hydraulic fracturing and other things, 
is so innovative and it will continue to fix its own problems. So if you look at society today, say climate change, carbon, methane emissions, all of these big themes uh, are really what the public is focused in on when it, term, uh, when it comes to oil and gas. And you already have the majors who for years now have been developing their own carbon capture technology. Uh, we didn't know about it until very recently necessarily, but the fact that they're already ahead of that and innovating is just another good example of how the industry always comes to its own rescue and it will fix its own problems basically. So um, the public relations piece is certainly um, a big opportunity within ESG. But certainly stakeholder relations and investor relations is the other big piece. So at Whiting, when we started publishing um, information on our website at first, we spoke with our investors and they really wanted an actual formalized ESG report, uh, one that they could download and keep on their desk and reference as they were covering the company. And so we were able to provide that for several years and the feedback we received from our investors was overwhelmingly positive. They were just happy that we were being transparent, happy that we were engaging in these disclosures. And uh, really, no negative criticism came from our you know, foray in ESG and our attempt again to be more open. You mentioned the word transparency, and that was the next question, where really, you know, a lot of people were very concerned about ESG. They were scared of ESG. Some people are still resisting ESG. When really, at the end of the day, if you're a responsible company, in my opinion, all they're asking for really is just a little bit of transparency. Meaning that, you know, if you say you are recycling, well, okay, put that in your recycling report then, you know, type of thing. So they're just, to me, this is really kind of an evolution of transparency and I think personally that it's an easy embrace for this if you're already demonstrating these types of things. What types of um, pushback, what obstacles, hurdles, objections have you heard from you know, your colleagues and, and from people in the energy industry when it comes to the whole ESG acceptance or this movement, if you will? Sure. Um, it certainly was more prevalent as it was getting going. So back in 2015 through maybe 2017, but um, it, it does feel unnatural to the oil and gas industry to be so public and to be so forthright with telling our stories and um, really getting ourselves out there in that sense, or at least in some cases. And the big concern we always heard was that we were giving the other side the information they needed to try to put us out of business. And the truth of it is most of the things that you would be disclosing through your ESG reporting in terms of the technical metrics are publicly available information. So it is things that people can go and find if they know how to today, whether or not you're putting it in an ESG report or published on your website. So the data is out there. What, what ESG really allows you to is get credit for the things that the company is doing well that may or may not be public. So say you have um, a great diversity and inclusion policy, the company is expanding its um, you know, recruitment of people of color or women or any sort of um, diversity of uh, experience. All of that are things that maybe aren't public and that are great things for the industry to promote and stories to tell. And so the key to ESG consistently improve. And year over year, if you can show change and show augmentation and the reporting that you guys are completing, it really is a benefit. And so um, we would say that, you know, ESG isn't giving people the information about a business. It's actually 
providing the information to show how advanced and um, sophisticated the companies really are. I think another obstacle that a lot of people in oil and gas are kind of grasping right now, and I think I just made that word up, are kind of <laughs> are kind of finagling with or whatever, is uh, when they th- hear the word ESG, they automatically think of the environment. They think of climate change. They think of climate activism. And I just want to, because you actually, your your organization does much more than just energy companies. Now, you specialize in energy companies because that's the the background you have. But my understanding is your your company that you're a part of actually does like medical, it does banking, it does a number of different industries. So um, what, what I want to ask you, I guess, is that when it comes to ESG, it's more about how the companies build trust with the communities and how they foster innovation and how they treat their workers and how they manage their supply chain much more than it has to do with climate change. Now that's a part of it too, but those other parts I think are, if not more important, at least equally important. Am I on the right page here? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. Um, you know, from a society perspective, environmental is perhaps why there is such an intense focus on the oil and gas industry. But I, I agree with you, the, the G in particular is incredibly significant and also why there continues to be a focus on the oil and gas industry. So um, governance has to do with how your board manages the company, their engagement in issues like climate change, executive compensation, um, environmental practices, responses to risk, all of those things are actually pieces when you're looking at ESG frameworks that fall through the governance lens. So it really is about paying attention to how engaged your leadership and your board members are. And that is what will give investors, potentially the, the communities at large, more um, awareness and insight into how the company is managed. Because really ESG, another way to think about it is is risk management. So if you are engaging in ESG, you're measuring the data and the metrics that it requests. And if you can measure it, then you can manage it. And that is really why you tend to see companies engaged in ESG performing better from a, a true business perspective. Um, as you mentioned with A&M, the firm I'm at now, we are an international practice and we are in all sectors. And that has really become a great benefit because Focusing on oil and gas um, and knowing the industry is incredibly helpful when it comes to engaging with oil and gas companies. But when you look at trends across the space, there are other sectors who are very far advanced. Uh, tech is one, and certainly any sort of uh, company focused in Europe, uh, they tend to be on that lead cutting edge of ESG. And so now to have the opportunity to engage with those companies and watch those practices really helps us bring those back into the oil and gas space to keep us uh, kind of more advanced and leading as well. Ashley McNamee is our guest. She's a director of ESG services at Alvarez and Marcel, is it? Marcel? Yep. Now, uh, before we kind of conclude here, because I'm looking at the clock, I did want to ask you about that risk management side of things, because I believe you and I talked about this off the air uh, last week a little bit, and I have had this conversation with a few people that have gone through the uh, ESG certification and just, you know, live the real experience part. And part of the 
uh, irons is part of the wrinkles that they're kind of ironing out right now. And where is, is that risk management side to where the social part seems to be so important in some areas that it's almost like they'll put through a business plan that's going to lose money if it's socially acceptable. Now, I don't know if that's actually happening or not, but it certainly seems like there's so much uh, emphasis put on that social part of things. And that's always been a big issue when it comes to, you know, companies and corporations is, yeah, it would be great to give money to the nonprofit and the social cause and this and that. So talk to me a little bit about how the risk management plays into that whole social element of the ESG movement. Sure. Uh, So I would say, first and foremost, the oil and gas industry has done an exceptional job when it comes to that social sector. So oil and gas has always come to the table. It's always done the right thing. It's always contributed back to the communities where their employees live and operate. And you see true, meaningful social engagement. So not just you know, fly by night, cutting in, coming in, cutting checks and moving on. It's more how the the folks who do social work for oil and gas companies tend to live within the oil patch and they really know the needs of that um, area and provide things. Widening, just for an example, we um, in Watford City worked with the new McKinsey County Hospital there to bring back a maternity week so that you could have babies back in the heart of the oil patch, which had been a service that had been gone for decades. So that's a, a true example of what social engagement in communities for oil and gas looks like. So I think we do social well. Um, but for in terms of risk, risk is um, obviously a very significant piece of any business, and to your point, and how it factors into business planning. And if you were to take a hot topic these days like climate change, uh, most oil and gas companies don't want to and don't need to get into a debate about if climate real. That's sort of something that um, is not necessarily <laughs> helpful to oil companies to engage in. But where you can apply climate change from a risk perspective is to look at the future and determine as you know rivers are rising, as snowfall is increasing, and you're going to see flooding in different areas, how prone are your operations to those potential changes? And that risk assessment is what would give investors more confidence in the future of the company's ability to continue to perform and deliver results is by overlaying those sorts of risks to their operations. So the risk management piece of it is, is very robust. It's one of the biggest pieces you can engage in. Um, and that's where ESG is really very uh, specific to each company. And so you see a lot of folks and any ESG work is better than done. So we're definitely um, proud of the industry for making the strides that it has. But determining what material to company is very specific to that company. And so to that example of climate change, how it could impact a company's operations, that's going to change, obviously, for each one. And so that's sort of a big key to ESG is determining what is material to a company. And then you take those material topics, and that's what you build your ESG program and report from. And it's sort of a difficult process to do if you're not familiar with it, but um, there are lots of folks out here who can help with that for sure. But that's that is what will drive sort of your risk engagement and your ESG program reporting is, you know, determining what is specific to your company and what you should focus on um, basic based on all of that, basically. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. <laughs> Made sense to me. Made sense to me because, and I think the most important part is that um, if there's no need to engage into a discussion, that's not going to bear any fruit. Don't do it. 
there's yeah. there, there's other there's other ways to get that fruit. Is <laughs> what I'm yeah. is kind of what I'm hearing. That's totally right. So the first step we we would do for a company is you know you can do a gap analysis and see what what they're doing internally that isn't public that might garner them some um, you know better scores from agencies or just more disclosures overall. But then the next piece of it really is uh, benchmarking, and we do a lot of work with private equity funds and looking around taking that example, what other private equity firms are doing with ESG, what is public, how far are they taking it, that sort of information is really what informs what we would advise a company to engage in also. So you don't ever want to get, you know, 14 steps ahead of your peers staying in line and doing what is appropriate is a, is a big piece of it. Um, the other thing I would bring up, though, is as we're looking at this, the, the potential for regulation when it comes to ESG is becoming very real. So uh, the SEC is no longer saying it might regulate ESG disclosures. It's saying it will. They have formed a task force. They are looking through different frameworks that they would support in order to try to standardize disclosures because the issue that some investors might point out today is that um, it's sort of apples and oranges. You can't necessarily compare a company side by side with each other comes to their ESG disclosures because they're not the same always. And so as you'll start to see regulation come into this space, the need to report ESG will obviously become very real. And the only thing I might you know throw in there is it's not something you can flip a switch and just do tomorrow. You really have to lay groundwork. You have to, again, going back to that measure and manage sort of idea. If, you, if we aren't already measuring and creating baselines for some metrics that you would be required to report, Doing that takes time. Start to regulate it. Definitely want to have all that in a place where you could execute and report if you needed to. So how can people get a better handle on what we're talking about, what you're talking about? Now, your company, obviously, I imagine, does these audits and can get people on board. So talk about uh, specifically uh, how you can assist energy companies bridge their business to the current century we're living in sure yeah we, we can certainly help um it is not a one-size-fits-all approach so i kind of um in some of the presentations we make throw out a menu concept where it's all of the things you could do to do esg perfectly but going back to that idea that each company is really different their sophistication levels are different their collection and data might look different it's really getting in and working with a company to understand where they are in the process and then tailoring the response. It's only what they need. So it's not one of those things where you're going to go to a firm or hopefully our firm and we would throw everything at you. It's really looking at what you need and providing the you need in order to be able to get to a place where you can report and disclose meaningfully to get credit for all the work you're already doing. How can people get in touch with you or your company? My name's Ashley McNamee. <laughs> um, my email is Ashley, or no, excuse me, a McNamee at Al Resin Marcel, and I, it's a little hard to spell, so maybe we can post that or something to help folks out. Oh, well, that, yeah. we definitely have the links on there, but you know, we <laughs> what we believe in here. I'm a Montessori uh, supporter. My kid went to Montessori, so we tried to do the audio, the visual, and you know, kid yeah. aesthetic. So, folks, write it down, then you'll never forget it because now you heard it. And then you'll sure. be able to see it. So if we can just get those folks to write it down, then we've completed the three forms of learning. And yes. um, yeah, that's what we try to do here. So, well, I appreciate you coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much for the, for the time. And it's great to talk to you as always. I know 
though it doesn't make me one of a kind that I came to you at an opportune time And it doesn't mean I'm one of the guys, but I'm great for you Came and opened my eyes, still none of us up in the play We don't think enough about the beauty we make It's all work here every day, but when the lights go out It's in that I say, sad to be hold Nothing you could do make me go The music featured on the Play Hard, Work Hard Morning Show this week is by Elma Cook. This is Elma Cook. Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com. The Crude Life Play Hard, Work Hard is sponsored in part by Orange Property Management. The origins of Orange Property Management date back to the year 2000 when Fargo native Mike Marcel, an entrepreneur who was living in California, was starting to acquire residential properties in the Bay Area as a little side venture. Fast forward to today, Orange Property Management has grown to 36 full-time employees across 13 communities with a portfolio of over 1,300 residential and commercial units ranging from single-family homes to multi-family apartment Elements. For more information, visit their website, orangeproperties.com. That's orangeproperties.com. The Crude Life with host Jason Spies. My name is Jason Spies, and this is the Crude Life Daily Update. On today's episode, we talk with U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer right here on the Crude Life Daily Update. I might say win, 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 win. And I appreciate Senators Heinrich, Hoven, Casey, and Cornyn for their support of the bill as well. The language in the bill actually builds on North Dakota's leadership on this issue. After Congress passed the CARES Act last year, North Dakota dedicated $66 million of its state funding to plug abandoned wells. I applaud my state's foresight and the real work it has already accomplished on the ground, plugging these wells and remediating the land. These efforts have provided an example that the federal government can emulate, and I welcome any opportunity to make Washington work more like North Dakota rather than the other way around. Madam Chairman and members of the committee, I've been in Congress long enough to recognize how rare it is for a proposal to be balanced enough to garner the support of the regulatory, industrial, and environmental communities. But that's exactly what the Regrow Act has done. And I would challenge anyone to find another proposal that's endorsed by the Environmental Defense Fund, Independent Petroleum Association, the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission, the National Wildlife Federation, the American Petroleum Institute, the Rocky Mountain Farmers Union, and the American Exploration and Production Council. Further, on May 25th, a bipartisan group of governors representing Oklahoma, New Mexico, North Dakota, Idaho, Kansas, Kentucky, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wyoming wrote to Chairman Manchin and Ranking Member Brasso asking for the Regrow Act to be passed. To listen to the full-length, exclusive interview with U.S. Senator Kevin Kramer, visit thecrudelife.com. That's thecrudelife.com. While you're there, be sure to join our ever-growing army of social media energy enthusiasts on Facebook, YouTube, even the Twitters. Go to thecrudelife.com, click on the social media tab. 
from the staff here at the Crude Life Daily Update. My name is Jason Spies, asking you to always remember, energy is more than an industry, it's a way of life. The Crude Life is sponsored in part by... For more than 100 years, First International Bank and Trust has been headquartered in western North Dakota, home of the Bakken. Our proven record of mineral management, appraisal, and brokerage services is now enhanced by the only Bakken-specific software, Mineral Tracker. Trust First International Mineral and Land Services and Mineral Tracker to protect your interests and help build and preserve a financial legacy for generations to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. Hey folks, Jason Spies with The Crude Life. Did you know about half the trees planted in the last 20 to 30 years have died within the first year? Lack of watering, transplant shock, special interest groups, poor growing conditions are just a few reasons it takes an industry to build a forest, and that is exactly what the industrial forest does. Sustainability sheds, critical pipeline systems are implemented to ensure the forest survives and absorbs carbon for decades to come. It takes an industry to build a forest. If you're interested in sustainable forests, growing industry jobs, check out the industrial forest. Forest.com. That's the industrialforest.com. Exclusive interview industry news, environmental innovation at the crude life.com. the most trusted voice in energy. On the phone, talking with us today, Chairman Christy Craddock of the Texas Railroad Commission. We are the oil and gas regulator, but we do pipelines and pipeline safety inspections for the state of Texas. We have roughly 470,000 miles of interstate and intrastate pipelines in Texas and roughly another 500,000 miles of gas utilities. We have a lot of pipes. 
in Texas. We're the largest pipe state by a six. It's an important part of what goes on in the state, and safety is is really important, obviously, to all of us. Absolutely. You know, the, the oil and gas industry has always been environmentally focused. I mean, uh, the President Biden's administration, that this is Obama-Biden 2.0 plus. And the rate at which we've seen the executive orders flying off the president's desk is taking America back, taking jobs back, and putting us in a detrimental position. But as the attorneys general for a number of states, we are pushing back. Um, from the Department of Transportation, that Permian, the Permian Basin has some of the um, most deadly roads of anywhere in the country. We average a fatality per day. That is absolutely unacceptable, and we need to do better. Uh, we just want to thank everybody that has been so supportive of us, and especially you, Jason. Without without your help, I don't think our event would be as successful as it is. Welcome back to the Crude Life. Play hard, work hard. I am Sean Forbes with TeamForbes.com and OGDirectory.com. Jason Spies is my co-host today. I went out there on my first rig move, and I was like, wow, I'm permitting all these loads, getting trucks going, load go, and I don't even know what half the stuff was. So when I finally got to go on the rig, I was like, wow, I was amazed. I was truly amazed of how this process is. No, I wasn't expecting any olive branch at all. Uh, the Democrat Party has decided that they don't like oil and natural gas, and uh, they were clear that they're going to go after us. I, I don't think that's any surprise. My name is Jenica, and today we get to talk with Amy Andrzak of the Interstate Natural Gas Association of America. Amy is the president and CEO. How are you doing today? I would say my my interest in this arena started more from an interest in politics and advocacy, more so than an interest specifically in the energy industry. Well, the first the, the first advice that I that I want to give is, ladies, put your clothes on, okay? If you want to be taken seriously, put your clothes on, which that's a whole other podcast topic. It's a funny thing when I think sometimes it's just really ironic. I'll, I we used to pull into the office and I would see some of my colleagues driving electric cars and things like that. And I'm like, how do you work for a large oil and gas company? <laughs> we pull in an electric car. So, I mean, even us, I mean, even in our, in our circles, we can see that things are changing. Actually, you are on the money. Back in 2014 and 15, when we first started approaching our management team at our reasoning for wanting to engage in ESG is that we had great stories to tell. We all like living the crude life, so. <laughs> Interested in becoming a sponsor? Email studio at thecrudelife.com.